Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talk series. In this episode, we hear from Tomi Reichenthal, one of the last remaining Holocaust survivors living in Ireland. Although he did not speak about his experiences for decades after moving to Ireland, a documentary called Close to Evil was later made about his attempts to meet one of his jailers. In his first Thought Talk, recorded at Galway International Arts Festival in July 2018, Reichenthal speaks with human rights lawyer Saul Wolfson about his experiences in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and what he thinks about 21st century politics. Please note, that this subject matter may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome all to this um, event, and it is a joy to see the event so packed out, despite the heavens opening intermittently during the day. And um, It is my great honour and privilege to be here, to be in conversation with uh, Tommy Reichenthal, Tommy is a man fated, accoladed by universities, awarded honours by the German government. He's a writer. He's a documentary maker. He's a man of huge bravery, courage and dignity. He is also, perhaps more pertinently for our talk this afternoon, he is a Holocaust survivor, one of the few remaining Holocaust survivors in these shores, and he is a Jew and he is a proud member of the Irish Jewish community. And we're going to be in conversation with him, and let's get started. Tommy, welcome. Thank you. Before you start, I'd also like to welcome you all. It's my third or fourth uh, uh, appearance here in Galway, and it's a great pleasure being here again. And thank you very much, uh, being invited to give me the opportunity to speak to uh, the Galway people about uh, a time that it's uh, something that we shouldn't forget because unfortunately, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the history is repeating itself. And it's very important that we keep reminding uh, that people don't forget, so it can happen again. So I'm delighted, and uh, I'm delighted. Thank you very much for the introduction as well. Lovely. And of course, our theme, broadly speaking, is the concept of home and an unimaginable home. And we're talking about perhaps the most unimaginable of unimaginable homes, as we'll hear later on from Tommy. Tommy, to start with your early life, and um, I'm struck when reading, rereading your book um, about your life in a rural village in Slovakia before you ever went um, to the concentration camp about how joyful and how happy it was and how close you were as a family. Tell us a little bit about that early part of your life. Well, I was born in Slovakia, lived my childhood in Slovakia. My parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, we lived for generations in Slovakia. Uh, My father was a farmer because it was a farming community where we lived. We were integrated into the 
rural society. Uh, my parents used to be invited to all the events that happened in the village, whether it was uh, a funeral or wedding. Uh, so we never felt any difference. As a child, I have very fond memories because all my relatives used to come to the village uh, to visit us, uh, especially later on, uh, because uh, in the village we always had a little bit more than people in, in the towns, for example. Everything uh, was not in the shops, but uh, uh, we have eggs, we had uh, uh, all the rural uh, homegrown uh, goods, so we exchanged things. So it was always better at the, in the rural area, and so the family used to come for the holiday. My cousin, during the uh, school period, they used to come to visit us. I used to play with them. So I had very uh, good uh, memories, very fond memories. I still call it today. It was my paradise, but of course, things later. The sense of that definitely reading your early childhood years from your book, a couple of things struck me, I suppose, in, in, the, in the context of going to be in conversation with you. One of them was how important food, fruit, cakes, and the joy you had and the excitement you had at the things your mother and your aunt and your grandmother would prepare. Food seemed to be a really, really big thing in your childhood, yes? Of course, and you know, the cakes and... Things. And the interesting thing is when uh, I sort of left the family and become bachelor and all that, I, I become very interested how to make these uh, different uh, foods, you know. And today I can do bake and cook the food that we used to have in the, and, that my mother did, you know. Yes, and of course food, as we'll maybe hear later, is obviously a big a big theme in terms of what happened to you in the next phase of your life. Tell us how things changed in Slovakia, because a lot of people may not fully understand that we, we associate the Holocaust with a killing machine and death and gas chambers, but it was much more creeping up than that. It was much more all-embracing than that as well. So things changed for you um, as a young boy in or around the time Tiso took over Joseph Tiso, the Catholic leader, uh, fascist leader of Slovakia. Tell us how things altered and what the first signs you noticed as a young boy, an innocent boy, were of the change in attitude towards you as a Jew. Well, when it all started, of course, uh, at the time I was five, five-year-old, four, five-year-old. So I wouldn't have known anything about it. And even as I was growing up, my parents didn't tell me much about a simple reason that they didn't want to frighten me. But there were quite changes that started without realizing that things are changing. For example, one of the things was that we used to have a sort of a football team in the village, my brother, uh, he's four years older. He used to play uh, with the uh, 
a team and, uh, you know, his name was Miklos and when he had to pass, so they would shout, Miklos, pass it to me and so on and uh, encouraging him doing his thing. And suddenly uh, he wasn't called Miklos, suddenly he was called uh, a Jew, pastor, born and thing. That's how the thing was creeping without even realizing. Suddenly we lost names, more or less, all the Jews that living there, or the Jew, we bought it from the Jew. And, uh, but of course, we didn't feel any uh, uh, anti-Semitism in, in the village from the beginning, uh, people, were very friendly with my parents, and in fact, if they needed any advice, they would come to, to my father or to my grandfather and ask for advice, but uh, if they needed a lawyer or, or a good doctor, where to go. And uh, But unfortunately, when, uh, of course, uh, the new fascist government come to power after 1939, after uh, Czech Republic and was occupied by German in Sudetenland, was annexed uh, by the German. Uh, things began to change and there was a great propaganda against the Jews. Now, we have to realize that at the time in uh, rural area, uh, we didn't have uh, the information system that uh, uh, people have today. Uh, you, you have television, newspaper, media, and all, all that uh, that uh, we have. So uh, people know uh, what is happening everywhere. We, we didn't know what was happening beyond the village. So how the propaganda began to be uh, spread was through the churches. At the masses, they began to blame the Jews for all the trouble that uh, happened in Slovakia. And people were very religious, and uh, Slovakia is a very Roman Catholic uh, state. It was then, and it's uh, still today. Uh, people go to a church, and uh, they began to believe what they were told. And so uh, the hatred of Jews slowly began. And of course, it wasn't just that you noticed it in terms of being called, oh, pass to the Jew, give the ball, steady your brother being called Mickey. I think your grandfather also lost property, and that was another element, was it not, before people were deported to concentration camps, there was the stripping away of property and identity. I think your grandfather suffered like that too. Of course, that, that, that started in 1941 with the Jewish Codex, where uh, they brought the first racial laws in Slovakia. There were 270 paragraphs in the uh, Jewish Codex, and it not only discriminated against Jews, but uh, uh, Jewish people couldn't walk, and uh, we had to wear a yellow star, we were not allowed to go to a national school, uh, we were not allowed to hold property, businesses were uh, uh, 
what they called confiscated, uh, that there was arization, uh, but the Jews still were involved for a while uh, in the business because what, what they did, and they did it very cleverly, they left the Jew in the business. He taught the uh, people that took over that become partners, not because they paid the way to become partners, but they were just put in and said, now that you have a partner. And of course, once they learned the business, they kicked out the Jew and uh, the property was lost uh, to the Jewish people. And with the laws also, they began to restrict the amount of money that the Jewish people were able to uh, take from their own money, from the bank. And slowly but surely, uh, the Jews became very poor. They couldn't afford anything. And it was a process of the Holocaust before the actual uh, deportations deportation started. And moving to the more terrorizing and the more, even more inhumane aspects, you and your family were effectively in semi-hiding, ducking and diving, trying to avoid what you knew was awaiting you, a deportation. Tell us a little bit about um, the lengths you had to go to to try and avoid deportation. Yeah. Well, in, in the first instance, uh, when they began with the deportation, which started in March 1942, uh, anybody that was not useful to the uh, Slovak economy was being taken at the time. We didn't know where we where they were taken at the time. Over 35 members of my family were taken away. I remember we said to them goodbye and said everything will be all right when this is all over. We will be reunited, and unfortunately, I never saw them again. Uh, I lost at the time 35 members of my family. But because my father was a farmer, he was considered useful to the economy, and therefore, at the time, we got a document that we shouldn't be taken away. The deportation stopped in October. I don't want to go to the details, but uh, it suddenly uh, stopped. But by the time it stopped, two-thirds of the Jewish population, which uh, started with about 90,000, uh, two-thirds, about 58,000, were taken away. So only about 25,000 were left by October 1942. Among them, uh, we were some of my uncle that were very important. One of them, he was uh, architect, so he also got this document that we shouldn't be taken away. But still during this time, Jews were being uh, arrested. And um, we had to find way all the time if the police uh, was on the lookout for Jews that we hide somewhere that they don't take us away. And um, at the time already, the Slovak population wasn't very sympathetic to the government. It was a fascist government. And of course, the Slovak people themselves 
their suffering, anybody that belonged to a different political outlook or anybody that spread any uh, rumors against the government was being arrested, uh, sometimes never seen again. So they cooperated a little bit with us because they hated the government. So when the police was in the neighboring village looking for the Jews, they would notify us Listen, they are on the way to your village, Merashice, you better disappear. We would lock out the uh, house and we would go to the cornfield and we would sit there for a day. We, we also had a hiding place in our, in, in the farm, in the, uh, in, in where we kept our um, corn to dry in the attic of the, a barn, and we had a ladder prepared, we had water there, some food, and if they sort of, we didn't have time to run to the field, we just went up, pulled the ladder up. Even our employee in the farm didn't know that we were hiding in the barn and we waited there till the evening. The police were looking for us, of course. The house was locked and everything, so they probably reported to the superior that we were not in the house. So it was sort of a hide-and-seek game, but of course it was a very serious game because it, it uh, this, this time and the news were leaking that uh, the people that were taken away were being massacred and all the rest. So between 1942 to 1944, uh, for two years, we had a very frightening time to avoid the police not to be taken away. And uh, we succeeded to, during this time. Until eventually the day came. And without necessarily going into all the detail of how you were uh, captured, it turned out that you were separated from your mom and yourself and your brother were really accosted by, by, the, uh, by the Slovak authorities. And um, it's you and your mother and your brother Mickey and your aunt Margot and your grandmother and your cousin Chava yeah. are put on a cattle truck and sent on your way to you don't know where. So tell us a little bit about that journey and what it was like, because I think this is an unimaginable part, but you mm. tell us, Tommy. Yeah, unfortunately, eventually, uh, we were betrayed and uh, the Gestapo came and uh, they caught us and uh, it was on the 2nd of November, 1944, uh, that uh, we were in a detention camp in uh, Slovakia, Seret, where they did the uh, selection. And uh, this was a very uh, cruel way how they separated uh, the people that were uh, destined for the gas chamber and the people uh, that had still a little chance uh, by being put as uh, slave labor. And uh, it was on the 2nd of November. We actually, at the time, 13 of our family were caught on the same day. And uh, we come to the selection on the 2nd of November. Seven people went to the right. 
uh, six of us, as you mentioned, went to the left. And we knew at the time already uh, what that meant. The mother, children, the old people, they were distant uh, for gas chamber. And the uh, uh, able bodies uh, to the right, of course, my uncles, my aunt, uh, seven of them went to the right. I remember at the time the whole thing happened very, very quickly. My aunt uh, couldn't even kiss her husband, say goodbye, we just wave, uh, said goodbye, when all over, we will be reunited. And this was the last time we saw them. They, unfortunately, they went to Buchenwald and, and uh, not a, a camp. Buchenwald was a slave labor camp. And people walked in stone quarry and uh, during winter, 12 hours a day. And uh, it was very hard work. And the life expectancy was between two to three months. So unfortunately, uh, the seven that went to the right uh, with the hard labor, uh, six of them, uh, passed away. Only one survived, which was my uh, cousin. He was at the time 15 years old. We were thrown into cattle cart. And this, this is a moment that I sometimes say it was the most horrific moment of my experience at, uh, of visiting the Holocaust. Because one minute we were living a civilized life. And the next minute, once the door close behind us, we become like animals. First of all, we were a little bit uh, shy and everybody kept uh, sort of uh, uh, to be private. But of course, uh, eventually there was a barrel in the middle of the uh, uh, cattle cart with a couple of buckets as a as a, as a toilet, the stench became unbearable. We had no hygiene, we couldn't wash ourselves or anything. And the stench, of course, was unbearable. And we were like animals, you, you had no privacy, nothing. And this was one of the first things as a child for me, it was just incredible situation. Even one uh, lady died during the trip and the body was lying there, uh, which for the first time in my life I saw such a thing. Later on, I, I, I of course, saw thousands. But uh, uh, this was the first uh, really hard experience that it all happened so quickly from more or less comfortable life to sort of a unbearable life. And it wasn't as if the cattle cart you were on had space for everybody. I mean, this was absolutely sardines packed, was it not? Yeah, there were about 50 people. I don't know uh, if you saw a cattle cart. It's not very big. I think they put four or five cattle in it, you know. We were uh, 50 of us, you know, and there was the pile in the middle and everything. Occasionally the train stopped and they would then empty it and it was just horrific. And then when you get to where you're going, you have this march through the forest, all of you, and still you don't really know what's awaiting you. And one thing that struck me when you've described it before in your book is 
the way that you were treated when you got off this cattle cart by the Germans, by the Gestapo, by the authorities, the German authorities and the German army, it wasn't just that they ill-treated you. I think you've described it before as a humiliation and that you say it was part of the, of the system. It was carefully thought out. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, what, what it meant, first of all, they would, they would um, uh, curse all the time and they would call our mother, you prostitutes, you, you lazy people. It, it, was, it wasn't only that what they did to us, but they also made sure that we, they treated us like dirt. And for example, when we used to go to a roll call, uh, the, it, it was the SS, of course, that uh, uh, treated us like this. They were uh, the way they were. This, this was their um, mark that they were very, very uh, cruel. And uh, they used to come like models. We were supervised by a German women. They were young women in their 20s. They had a lacquer on the nail, they had lipstick, they had uniform, tailored uniform, polished boots. They looked like a model just come uh, to parade or something. And we were filthy, dirty and thing. And the whole setup was that they made us feel that way. He said, we are the master. They're, you know, they were smart, clean and everything. But you, you are nothing. And all the time when, when the slightest thing somebody did out of the ordinary, which they not supposed to do, immediately they were beaten up and called all the name that you can imagine. So... It was a very difficult, uh, especially for the adult. As children, we, we couldn't grasp the gravity of the crime that was committed around us. And um, I just, uh, today, when, when uh, not today, it's, it's not so bad, but years ago when I started to lecture and I was, I used to talk about the time that I had to have a, yellow star uh, on my left side when I went to school and the children used to call me all the name. And at the time, I knew, well, I deserve it. I don't know why I uh, sort of, not that I accepted, but, he, but now when I was speaking uh, years ago to school and I had to describe it, I felt the, the, the grace, how, degrading it was and I used to break out just talking about it because I felt that, uh, that and that that was that what was happening to us all the time uh, to not only to treat us very badly starving cold uh, starvation cold and disease and everything but even with the humiliation all the time uh, to, to bear that was really very hard. And where you end up is Hut 207. That's your hut in the camp, Hut number 207. Oh, yeah, Hut yeah. 207. Yeah. That's your home. 
in that this was camp. my home and uh, when I first time visited the camp uh, which was uh, in the uh, 2004 or something 2005 and uh, I asked uh, I actually could find it it was just too incredible I still remember the a little way how we used to come. And I, from memory, I said, we had a guide, of course. There was two or seven. And uh, I came there and I was actually able to stand at the place where my bed was. You know, the hut wasn't there anymore, you know. But it was so hard. It was so uh, emotional. It was just incredible. And that was our home day, you know. And tell us about that home. Because unimaginable all and all as it was, you still had to get up in the morning, go to your roll call. You were given miserable rations of food. But somehow or other, I was struck rereading your book, how close you were with your cousin, with your aunt, with your mother, obviously, and your grandmother, but how you really supported each other. But just so that the people here will get a sense of what you actually saw, tell us what life and the day was like in that camp. Yeah. Well, of course, we arrived there in, in November. Now, northern Germany at the time, November, the temperature, first of all, would drop well below zero. I remember when we had here minus 10 uh, and uh, with our central heating and with our double glazing, we were on freezing. Uh, in Belgian Belgium, the temperature used to drop to minus 15, 20, even minus 25. Now, we're living in this uh, wooden hut with uh, just thin walls, no double glazing, no heating, two blankets for uh, covering ourselves during the night. So we actually lived in our clothes day and night, the same clothes for week and month. So you can imagine we, we never had any shower, only when we arrived. Uh, after about two weeks, we went to this uh, defleecing process because there were the, the, all kind of creatures that were crawling over us and uh, it was called the defleecing uh, process. At the time, we thought we were going to a gas chamber, but it was really, we had a shower. This was the only shower we had within the six months that we were under the and German supervision. The day started early in the morning with a roll call, and you had to stand outside about an hour till the, our supervisor came. I mean, the cold was just unbearable. We had to stand there and hop on the feet and keeping ourselves somehow uh, with the blood moving. Then we had to stand there. We had no longer our name. We had numbers. We had it sewn on our left side. I have no tattoo. It was done only in uh, Auschwitz, but uh, we used to have the number on on the clothes, and when my number was called, I used to say, yeah, 
After the roll call, we got our breakfast, which consisted of uh, black coffee and two slices of bread. And that was our breakfast. Uh, then for lunch, we used to have... Um, um, turnip. Turnip. What? Turnip. Turnips. I always forget the word. Turnips that were cut into uh, cubes and boiled with water. That was our lunch. And in the evening, we again had um, black coffee and uh, two slices of bread. Sometimes we got a square of uh, margarine or uh, jam. So this was a menu every day. There was no something different. And this, <laughs> the amount of food that we had, just to compare it uh, to our understanding of calories, uh, we eat about 2,300 calories a day. Uh, if you're walking very hard or you're a sportsman, you even eat 3,300 calories. Our intake was a little over 600 calories a day. You can't survive. It's like six water cracker every day. That was our food. Now, for a day or two, you can live on it, but uh, after that, you start to starve. And starvation is something and that is, uh, unless you experience it, you don't know what that means. You basically think all the time about food. You get your food and you're hungry and you're waiting uh, till you get another meal and you eat it and you're hungry. And you're hungry all the time, not hungry for a day, not for a week. You're hungry for months. And of course, because you're starving, the body eats itself from inside, and with time you begin to be uh, thinner and thinner. Eventually you become like a skeleton, and finally you die. You just can't survive of that amount of uh, food. And so in Belgian Belsen, uh, people were not gods. Belgian Belgian was not extermination camp. Belgian Belgian was a detention camp built in 1939 to hold about 25,000 inmates. First, it was a, a, a prisoner of war camp, and then in 1943, they converted it to a detention camp. Uh, for 25,000 people, mostly Jewish people, but there were uh, Jehovah Witnesses, there were gypsies, there were political prisoners, there were gay and uh, uh, lesbian. Uh, so the camp was divided in uh, several uh, parts, and people were dying every day. We saw people front of our eyes dying. These people were only skeleton. They used to walk around. They were very, very weak. And occasionally they used to fall down as children. We used to play and stop playing because we wanted to see what will happen next. If they got up, we said, oh, they have another day to live. If they didn't get up, we knew they died. And this used to happen uh, several times a day. 
Every day, these, we had this uh, uh, zone de commando. They used to uh, come every morning, go to each block. There were about 80 blocks in, in Belgian Belsen. They would ask if anybody died. They would go in, pick up the corpses, throw them onto a, a, cut, a, a cart uh, with two wheels, wheel to the mortuary, which was just uh, uh, about 200 yards from where they lived. And from there in the evening, they would be taken to the crematoria. We actually had crematoria in Belgium, Belgium. Uh, it was going from the day we arrived till uh, several days before we were liberated, 24 hours a day, the chimney during the day, uh, the smoke used to go out, spread around the camp. You could feel the stench of the flesh being born. And during the night, you could see uh, this glow coming up from the chimney. So we got used to this uh, uh, smell. So uh, that was routine. Uh, every day, and we liked routine. We didn't like if things were suddenly changed. I remember I'm describing it in the book that one day uh, four officers come uh, and they just come to see the roll call and they were joking and smiling and we were in the, on the roll call and there was uh, all the, already people were told, why are they here? What are they, what they going to do with us? Well, they are planning something. So we liked the routine. We didn't want that anything change because anything change was danger. People, we, we, we wanted to survive the day. And you couldn't think what will happen in a week's time or month's time. You survived, you survived the day. We're waiting for the next one to survive next day. So it was a tough life all the time. You never knew what's going to happen. You see all the death around you, the stench around you, the insult, the beating, the shouting. It was just horrific. And of course, Tommy, as well as all that, towards the end and before liberation, towards the end of your time there, there was this massive outbreak of typhus. And that seemed to send a, the camp into a whole different spiral in terms of, in terms of the, the number of dead. And indeed, Joran Margot, I think, succumbed on liberation to it. So do you remember? She, did, she didn't die. She, she, she didn't die, but she was hospitalized, yeah, yes. Yeah, so... Um, just before liberation, was the camp in an even was in an even worse state than before? Well, uh, it started in January 1945 because uh, at the time uh, uh, the German army began to retreat. And as you know, uh, Auschwitz was liberated on the 28th of. Um, January. And uh, as the Germans were retreating, they were taking their prisoners with and in Auschwitz at any time. There were about 150, 150 
prisoners. There was slave labor. They walked. Uh, there was a lot of industry around uh, Auschwitz. Uh, the companies that still today uh, exist, like Siemen, Krupp, and uh, uh, Fibers, uh, the people that uh, uh, <coughs> manufactured uh, pencil and thing. Uh, they, they employed uh, slave labor and. Um, so they, they were evacuated before uh, Auschwitz was liberated. This uh, evacuation was done by foot because uh, uh, lorries and trains couldn't reach anymore Auschwitz. Uh, the roads were bombed, the railway line were bombed. So they marched them out and these marches and the name, the death marches of Auschwitz because Tens of thousands died in these marches. I, I read about one of them. 15,000 started out and only 5,000 reached the destination. People froze on the way. They starved to death and anybody was lagging in the march. The Germans just shot them because they didn't want it to be delayed. It was uh, people that couldn't uh, march as fast. And many of these uh, uh, people from Auschwitz come to Belgian-Belsen. So the population of Belgian-Belsen over a very short period grew from uh, 25,000 to over 60,000. There was no room for these people. There was no food for these people. So they were put in the huts that were built for 150, 200 people. And suddenly these huts contained uh, uh, 600, 700 people. So you can imagine if we had, uh, if we have here 150 and we had suddenly 300 people, the congestion that would be here. And of course, uh, most of the people that were dying in Belgium, Belgium were due to the disease of typhoid. You got diarrhea, you got dehydrated, and you died. There was no medication or anything. So if you got a typhoid, it was like sentenced to death. So when these um, huts were so overflown with people, suddenly a uh, uh, epidemic of typhoid broke out and people began to die in hundreds, 500 people per day, 17,000 per month. So you, can, you can't imagine. Of course, the uh, crematoria no longer could cope for this amount of corpses. So the corpses were just thrown out. And uh, suddenly you began to see these piles of corpses all around. As children, we used to have a, a sort of a green area where we used to chase each other and playing games. And suddenly there were small piles of corpses. I mean, when I say small pile, 50, 100 corpses lying there in a pile. And um, we continue to play. And where did we play among these corpses as children? And this, these corpses were decomposing, they were rotting away. The stench became unbearable. Again, we got used to it. But I never forget 
that we played hide and seek. We didn't hide behind walls or trees. We hide behind pile of corpses. I mean, this is, this is something that a person can't even imagine. I mean, as children again, we, we, we got through it. I mean, thank God I got through it very well. And it's probably because I had no grasp of what was happening there, the crime that was committed there. I mean, the British soldiers that uh, came and liberated us, we saw them crying. There were young men of 18, 20, 23 year old, and they were crying when they were seeing what they see, saw there. It is estimated that between 15 to 25,000 corpses were lying around in Belgium, Belgium. It was the most horrific scene and most, uh, I think, even people that come from Auschwitz where huge crime was committed, of course, there were gassed and over a million people were gassed, but they never saw what they saw in Belgium, Belgium. It was so horrific. Uh, when we were liberated. Before we move on to liberation and your life after and your role as an educator, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk about, it's just one thing about being a child in Bergen-Belsen, and there's one thing that story you tell in your book, and I'd like you to mention it and give a flavour of it. It's about one time the efforts that were made to keep you as children still having some life as a child and you tell a story about Hungarian girls who were in a block across the way who took the trouble to make a special, a special occasion or a special evenings for you. Tell us a little bit about that because it nearly brought tears to my eyes when I read it in the book. Well, this girl, they, they come from Auschwitz and um, they, they were put to work in, uh, in the kitchen. And in, people wanted to walk in the kitchen because it was the only place that you didn't start. You had at least walking there and having food. And uh, these girls, they come from Auschwitz and they saw all the children that come to Auschwitz. They got off the train and within a couple of hours, maybe a day, they ended up in the gas chamber, so they're all gone. And when they come uh, to Belgium, Belgium, suddenly they saw children, they saw us, and they lived not far from us. And um, they, they come and they called us sort of, come in the evening when the guard wouldn't see anything, come to our hut. And uh, there was about... 15, 20 of us, we sort of kept that secret and we went uh, uh, to the hut there. And this girl, they were young girls, 17, 18, 20, or, and they just each uh, sort of adopted one of the kids. And um, we sat on the bed and they gave us food and uh, they put arm around us. They didn't know what to do for us because they just were so happy to uh, see um, what um, 
that children actually uh, survive till uh, one day, of course, uh, it was discovered and uh, we thought we were not allowed to go and, it, and the whole thing stopped. But years ago, um, uh, here on Late Late, uh, a lady was on a program and uh, she described uh, that her sister uh, died in Belgen-Belsen and she came from Auschwitz and she walked in the kitchen and she came there in January and thing. And I'm watching this on the television and I suddenly think to myself, could be one of them. One of them, her daughter, my, and I'm, I'm sitting there with my wife and I said, I should ring uh, to the uh, RT to tell her that I would like to tell her about this girl. Who knows, her sister might have been the girl that was looking after me. I was unable to do it. And uh, years ago, then I was writing the book, I started to inquire about this uh, woman. And uh, eventually, I, she wrote a book and uh, eventually I got in touch in New York. Uh, she was living in New York. And unfortunately, I missed her by three months. She died three months before I was... Um, I, I never really was... I wanted to tell her. That. But in the middle of all of that, it shows there was some... There's such a huge effort, such a big thing yeah. for, uh, in terms of some form of normalization for you as a child. Tell me about, <coughs> you get liberated, the British soldiers come, you look after, you go to hospital because you're malnourished and your aunt has <coughs> the typhoid and you're sitting and nursing her. Um, but tell me, a lot of Holocaust survivors have different experiences about what's important to them after they get liberated. For some, it's having a knife and fork. For some, it's having clean sheets. For you, what was the big thing? What were the big things you remember most that you thought, I can do this now? It's, it, I, I don't have a recollection what I would want to do. I, I only remember when, when we were going to the uh, magazines the, 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 where the German army kept their uniform and everything. So people come, I mean, everything was destroyed and everything, but everybody took the practical things like underwear, vest, and, and some part of the uniform to be thing. What did I take? It was the decoration that the, <laughs> the office, <laughs> office, you know, the balls that they had and the decoration, and I come happy with the thing, not the practical thing that I... But anyway, as a child, that, that, that what was, to me, something special. But, um, of course, it was the food that, that was the most important. Now, uh, when we were liberated, uh, people were, 90% of the people of Belgian Belgium were mortally sick and many uh, very hungry. Uh, even though we were starving, we still got a little bit more than um, 
the inmate generally. They didn't get anything. They, they, they ate, uh, you know, there is even a description of cannibalism in, in, in Belgian Belgium, so it was so bad. So the British Army, the first thing did, they took uh, trailers and they filled them with the uh, military uh, portion and they left them different part of the camp and of course the inmates could take as much as they could and uh, unfortunately uh, because these people starved so much they could not digest uh, the beef and the, uh, what the army was eating and uh, they still think today that at least uh, two to three thousand inmates died because of this mistake, they ate this food, they couldn't digest it and it actually killed them. So they stopped it quickly and they began to give very small portion, and especially when I was brought to the hospital. I, 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 I was not sick, I didn't have any uh, ailment, but I was... Uh, like a skeleton and uh, I needed to get stronger and the, the fact that my aunt had a typhoid I went with her and looked, uh, looked uh, after her made her eat and uh, uh, so that, that she survived eventually but uh, I, I remember two things first of all that uh, they started to feed us for a meal, a little square uh, bread with something inside and very small portion. And because I wasn't uh, sick, I was starving. And uh, I, I used to run around the hospital. They didn't have children pajamas, so I had to have an adult pajamas. So the top went up to here. <laughs> And I used to run around. It was like uh, the top of a pyjama is running around. And I used to come to the uh, nurses and I said, I'm hungry. They, they were German nurses and they were also English nurses. And he said, we can't give you any, anything because we, not, we, we don't eat kosher. You know, Jewish people don't eat pork and... and, and uh, bacon and all this and they used to get this and I said forget about the course I want to I need to so that was the one thing that I asked and the other thing I was asking for was cigarettes and they said why you want cigarettes little kid you want cigarettes you know he said it's not for me it's for my aunt because my aunt she didn't want anything Cigarette. She was a big smoker. She wanted cigarette, but she wasn't eating. And I wanted to make her eat. And I used to get cigarette. I used to break it in half, give her food. I used to sort of wave a cigarette front of her. I said, you eat that, I give you the cigarette. And uh, really, I, I, I saved her life. And I never forget while she was alive. And I used to visit her and, uh, when she had guests or anything. And she said, you know this man? He saved my life. Because there were so many sick people that the nurses couldn't uh, attend to each individual. 
So the fact that I used to sit with my aunt and I forced her to drink water and I forced her to eat uh, food, I saved her life. That's a beautiful story, Tommy. And just have a couple of things that I really want to ask you about because we're drawing to the end, but not near, not there yet. Um, you didn't talk. I mean, you get you get liberated and you go back to Slovakia and things are not so good there, but you want to go to Israel. You go to Israel with your family and you then live in various countries. We might get back to that. But what I want to ask you about is, is that you didn't talk for many, many, many years about your Holocaust experiences until you were retired from your profession and business. And now you talk all the time. You spend most of your days, a few times a week, going to schools, telling our young people, the amount of young people that I've come across, contemporaries and my daughters, you mentioned Tommy Reichenthal, or they come up and tell you that they had you in their school. Why, why didn't you talk about it? Or why couldn't you talk about it for so long? And why do you talk about it all the time now? Yeah, it's, it, it's not something unique. I mean, most of the people that uh, went through these horrific experiences in other countries well, uh, many, many thousand, they don't, they stop talking about it. When we left the concentration camp, and I remember meeting my father for the first time, I didn't jump up and I said, you know, this happened to us in that world, this is how we live. I didn't just say anything. I mean, my grandchildren go to America and they go to Disneyland. The first thing they come, they tell me, you know, granddad, we see this and that and other. We just stopped talking about it. And perhaps uh, it was good, but it wasn't only us. I mean... People that experienced and saw what was happening there only for a short period, they just can't uh, talk about it. I remember going to my general practitioner for years and years, and uh, eventually she hears me speaking uh, on radio about uh, Belgian Belsen and, and some experiences and all that. And I come to visit her for some a problem, and she said, Tommy, I never knew that you were in Belgium, Belgium. You know, my father, he was a doctor after the liberation, a doctor in Belgium, Belgium. I said, oh, I, I got very excited. I said to have you got any picture? Have you got any, of course, not alive anymore, but he said, no, I haven't. And he said, did, did he tell you anything? He said, no, he never told us anything. He, he fought in Burma in the far east with the British army. And he used to tell us all the experience in the jungle and thing. Come to Belgium, Belgium, nothing. People, just the shock of experiencing, seeing what they saw uh, was something so horrific that they... Uh, didn't speak about it. So I, I didn't, nobody asked me and I didn't say to anybody. I mean, not only that I didn't say it, for example, uh, my wife uh, passed away in 2003 to, due to cancer. She knew I was a um, Holocaust survivor, but she never knew anything what I went through. I never told her anything. I never told my 
killed or anything. They just knew that I was, I just couldn't speak about it. Eventually, when I retired, and, um, you know, I retired because I thought, well, I want to a little bit, uh, when my wife passed away, I had no responsibility. My children, thank God, they did all right. And uh, for myself, I had enough to uh, continue to uh, live a, a good life, uh, visiting and traveling. But, you know, these things are sort of uh, excitable from the beginning. And then suddenly you find yourself, uh, what you do now? So I couldn't sit around. I started to write uh, article in some magazine about my experiences for the first time. And of course, the uh, media come to me and then uh, people from school, uh, they wanted me to talk about like people are invited like uh, to school, you know, um, police or, or people that drink and think they speak. So they wanted to hear a Holocaust survivor. It was actually my grandson um, school and uh, I come and uh, it was very difficult. I broke down. The children began to cry and everything. I couldn't do it. But then I realized that um, they knew very little about the Holocaust because uh, the Holocaust was taught within the Second World War. In other words, uh, when they were learning about the Second World War, they would mentioned the Holocaust, maybe they wrote one hour or so about the Holocaust. When I asked some of the students uh, what you know about the Holocaust, they would say uh, six million Jews perished, but that was all. They didn't know anything about And the realization came to me that I'm one of the last witnesses uh, to this horrific crime that was committed. And therefore, I have to speak out. And that's how the whole thing started. And I had no intention. It was a voluntary work. It's still voluntary work, of course. And uh, I started to talk. And now they can't stop me talking. <laughs> and it is basically because I think I owe it to the victims that their memory is not forgotten. I lost 35 members of my family. And as I started with my presentation here, unfortunately today, a lot of the things are being repeated what was happening in late 1930s. And we must not forget about the Holocaust. So it reminds us that it can, it should not happen again. And Tommy, the last thing I want to ask you, because our theme is home, and we talked about even in the context of a concentration or, or of a concentration camp, how it can be home. You went back to Slovakia, you've been a number of times, but on one occasion, you gained access to your old house and you saw there a coat dresser. And the coat dresser was from your own home as a child. And you proudly showed me the coat dresser in your home in Dublin, back here, which you had transported. 
Why was that so important? Oh, it's, it, well, when I started to go back to Slovakia, it was after the communism. It actually, I, the first time I came there, the, the communism just com- collapsed. And I, I was not able to go back as a Slovak. I had to go back as a, a tourist. And, and uh, I had to give up my Slovak citizenship because I was afraid if I go back as Slovak, which I could have done, uh, they could have, the communists could have recruited me to the army or something like this, and something terrible could happen to me. So I had to give up my uh, Slovak citizenship, and they demanded from me uh, money for the time I went to school in Slovakia. When I was in the, in the embassy, I said to the ambassador, I never learned in Slovakia. You, you kicked me up from the school and ah, you went to the village, you went and I had to pay hundreds of pounds. And at that time, it was a lot of money for me. And I paid it because I did, I was afraid to go, but I wanted to visit. So still the house was there, but it was... Uh, left because uh, the people that uh, bought the house from us, they died off. And uh, so I tried to break in uh, because I remember this uh, court hanger and I said, if it's there, I would like to have just a moment from the thing. So I was able to, uh, there was a part of the wall broken. I climbed over and there I see the coat hanger. Uh, so one of the people in the village which used to work for my father, he was still alive. So I told him about it. I said to him, try, I tried to take it off the wall, I couldn't. And he took it off and took it to his house. And eventually I brought it to, to Ireland. And it is my uh, holy. Yeah. It's very beautifully decorated. It has Slovakian some Slovakian artwork on it. It's quite a piece, but... Um, so you have a piece of home in your home. I have a piece of home in my home, yeah. Thank you for listening to First Thought. To watch the Q&A with Tomi Reichenthal and for more First Thought talks, visit the Galway International Arts Festival website on giaf.ie.